to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. My name is Brendan Dewan. I'm one of the cardiothoracic surgery residents at the University of Colorado. I'm here with Dr. David Fullerton, the director of the thoracic surgery residency program and chief of the division of cardiothoracic surgery here at the University of Colorado. Welcome, Dr. Fullerton. Thanks, Brendan. Great to be here. Today we'll be talking about the workup presentation and treatment of aortic valve stenosis. And we'll be focusing on specific intraoperative challenges such as difficulty arresting the heart, paravalvular leaks, valve selection, and sizing, as well as angular enlargements. So, Dr. Fullerton, I'd like to start with the case presentation. You have a 73-year-old female who's referred to you by a primary care physician after a transthoracic echo identified critical aortic stenosis. You see her in consultation where she describes a two-month history of progressive shortness of breath and dyspnea on exertion. She denies chest pain, but notes that her symptoms limit her from walking 50 feet continuously. Her past medical history consists of hypertension and gout. She denies a history of stroke, renal, or hepatic dysfunction, and her exam is remarkable only for systolic murmur in the precordium. Her lung fields are clear, and she has no lower extremity edema. She undergoes a left heart cath, which demonstrates uh, no significant coronary disease. Her echo notes a mean gradient of 65 with a jet velocity of 6.3 meters per second and a valve area of 0.5 centimeters squared. Additionally, she has preserved systolic function, but there is evidence of diastolic dysfunction with severe LVH. What is your uh, interpretation of this echo report, and how would you approach this patient? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, first of all, she's got severe, she has what would be considered very severe aortic stenosis. So the kind of the accepted uh, echo definition of a of severe aortic stenosis is a mean gradient of 40 or a velocity greater than or equal to 4 uh, meters per second uh, across the valve. Um, now it turns out that uh, there is a small uh, subset of patients who actually have what is termed very severe aortic stenosis or very critical aortic stenosis, depending on who, you, who the author is, where the, um, the velocity is greater than five meters per second. And in this case, she's got a velocity greater than six meters per second. So the, the significance uh, of kind of distinguishing between severe and very severe is the patients that have very severe aortic stenosis at are, are at particularly high risk, even if they are asymptomatic, of an untoward event in the foreseeable future. And that untoward event is either going to be uh, a greater likelihood of sudden death um, or uh, a greater likelihood of precipitous heart failure. So when you see people like this, even if they're asymptomatic, um, the, the standard thing to do is to recommend aortic valve replacement. We'll take the same patient but change the echo findings of an ejection fraction of 25% with a mean gradient of 35 now and a jet velocity of 3.2 meters per second. What is your approach to this patient? So here you've got a situation where 
you've got echo criteria for moderate aortic stenosis based on the gradient. And what you can't tell is whether or not, I mean, you can't tell at rest, just how much contractile reserve this patient may have. In other words, is their left ventricular function going to get better if you replace the aortic valve? And secondly, are they at uh, particularly high risk from the operation? So in situations like this, uh, what many would recommend is doing a dobutamine stress echo. So you just take them down to the echo suite. There's standard programs uh, in all hospitals for doing a dobutamine stress echo, but you start at a low dose, and they'll believe it or not, they'll go up to 50 mics per kilo per minute, which is big. Um, and you're, you're monitoring the, the heart the whole time with the echo, looking to see, A, does the contractile function get better, and that's based on, you know, direct imagery, and B, does the gradient increase across the valve. If it does, you can have confidence that, number one, they'll get better if you replace the aortic valve, and secondly, they'll, they'll get through the operation okay. Moving on to a couple of preoperative questions. So say you find a patient that has severe aortic stenosis and you learn that they're, they have bicuspid uh, aortic valve disease. Uh, do you feel that these patients warrant a CT scan of their chest to assess for concomitant aortopathies? Uh, I think it's prudent to do that, uh, particularly if the patient is a young adult. Um, and, and, of course, the guidelines call for replacement of the aortic ascending aorta at least, you know, if it exceeds uh, about four and a half centimeters. If, if you're going to operate on the valve and the, the aorta is about four and a half centimeters in diameter, most people recommend replacing the ascending aorta. How do you counsel patients on valve selection with regards to mechanical versus bioprosthetic valves? Mm -hmm. And has TAVR in the future of valve and valve therapy changed the way you counsel these patients? Well, uh, so in the United States today, more than 80% of all prosthetic valves implanted surgically are tissue valves. So that is driven by a couple of things. Number one, the 70% uh, of all aortic valve re replacements are done in people above the age of 70. So you're, you're typically operating on people... Uh, at an advanced age. The durability of a tissue valve is greatest among older people. So it's inversely related to the age of the patient at the time of implantation. So the older you are, the longer the valve's going to last. And the think thinking goes, and the data suggests, that the, uh, the likelihood of um, requiring a, another or a redo aortic valve replacement if the first valve is implanted at greater than age 70 is actually very low. So for that reason, most valves are going to be tissue valves. But what's happened over the last decade is that even young adults, for reasons of lifestyle, don't want to take Coumadin. And the choice in, in, in all people comes down to a, a matter of patient decision but you'll find that more and more young adults are electing to 
receive a tissue valve in order to avoid Coumadin. So how do I counsel people? I, I, it's simply a matter of, number one, telling the patient it's their decision um, and, and typically indicate that there is no perfect substitute for one's own valve. There are pros and cons of either a mechanical valve or a tissue valve. A mechanical valve will structurally last indefinitely, but it will require Coumadin um, lifelong. And the risk of taking Coumadin is the risk of bleeding, which is about 2% per year. The other side of the coin is a tissue valve, which in and of itself will not require Coumadin indefinitely, but the valve will not last indefinitely, and depending on the patient's age, uh, will structurally deteriorate, and a, another procedure will be required. Now, the other variable to discuss with people is the, uh, the fact that even uh, mechanical valves may require a reoperation in the future. And it turns out that at 10 years after a mechanical aortic valve is in place, the risk of reoperation is not different than it is from implanting a tissue valve. There's between a 5 and a 10% chance of requiring reoperation typically for either prosthetic valve endocarditis or for panis uh, formation, which is impairing the function of the valve. Um, so that's basically how I approach that. And, and then once the patient has had their questions answered and has received as much information as they need, then the choice is theirs. There's some recent literature describing subvalvular gradients and stenosis in the, in the acute postoperative period in patients who undergo a tissue aortic valve replacement. There is some suspicion that this may represent thrombus. In light of this data, do you anticoagulate all of your tissue AVRs postoperatively? And if so, for what duration and what regimen? Yeah, uh, I do and I always have. Um, and the rationale uh, for doing so was uh, for the prevention of uh, thrombus formation on the sewing ring and the suture material and embolization. So it turns out that the risk of stroke after a implantation of a mechanical valve um, is about 1% a year. That's, that takes all comers, but it's highest in the first three months after the valve's implanted. And so the traditional thinking has been to anticoagulate patients in order to allow the sewing ring and the sutures to uh, be covered with a, a kind of a fibrin uh, coating, if you will, to make them less thrombogenic. Now, about 10 or 12 years ago, um, it became popular for surgeons not to anticoagulate tissue valves. And uh, it had turned out that by, you know, 2010, um, the vast majority of surgeons did not anticoagulate their patients after a prosthetic aortic or bioprosthesis was implanted. And so I was one of the minority in that case. And what what has surfaced in the last five or six years are some data, as you've indicated, that there may be uh, laminar thrombus forming on the leaflets of the valve. Uh, 
that occurs very early after it's implanted. There are several case reports um, of bioprosthetic valves actually thrombosing very early, like within hours after implantation. And uh, this generated the hypothesis that the, uh, these valves may, be, may have some degree of thrombogenicity early on, and now the pendulum is swinging back towards anticoagulating people for that reason. Let's move on to a few intraoperative questions. Now you take the patient to the operating room for a surgical aortic valve replacement, and upon induction, the patient goes into V-fib arrest. The patient is emergently intubated and CPR is started. Uh, defibrillation attempts are not successful. How do you proceed? Well, you've got two options. One is to do a, a, a quickly do a sternotomy and try to centrally cannulate the patient. Um, anybody that's done it will tell you that it's easier said than done. Um, so I think if possible, it's probably desirable to continue CPR and try to cannulate the patient in the groin and go on bypass from the groin. So what I would do would be to cut down on the groin, just you know, either make a, a transverse or a longitudinal incision over the right femoral region and directly cannulate the femoral artery in vein. Okay. In a separate scenario, now you've centrally cannulated, you're on bypass, um, and you cross-clamp and give uh, anti-grade cardioplegia. You find that you are unable to arrest the heart. What is your approach to this challenge? So the aortic, uh, is the aorta distended with the cardioplegia? It is. Okay. So despite the fact that you feel like you're giving cardioplegia, now, somebody like the case you presented has severe left ventricular hypertrophy. So it may, it may take several liters of cold cardioplegia to get this thing to completely arrest and to get it cold. Um, and so if you're satisfied that, number one, the cardioplegia is going in, judged by the distension of the aortic root, and two, they don't, let's assume they don't have any severe coronary disease, uh, and the heart is not distended from inadequate venous drainage, then just keep giving the cardioplegia, apply topical cold, keep it decompressed, and it'll stop. So once you've arrested the heart, can you describe how you make your aortotomy and why? So before applying the cross clamp, um, what I typically do is um, gently dissect off the fatty tissue overlying the proximal aortic root so that I can identify the uh, external surface of the right coronary artery button where it's coming off the aorta. Now what you want to do is avoid making your aortotomy too close to the right coronary. So I'll try to go you know, somewhere between 18 and 20 millimeters distal on the aorta from the right coronary button. I'll make a little mark with the bobe uh, on the epicardial surface of the aorta there so that I, I know exactly where I'm going to incise it. If you don't do that, once the aorta is cross-clamped and, you know, things, the geometry, the, the, uh, geometry has changed a little bit, you, may, you may, be, may have a hard time finding where you want to open it. So I incise it transversely for a matter of maybe two or three centimeters 
and then examine internally to make sure that the aortotomy is where I want it. In other words, it's not too high above the aortic valve and it's not too low down onto the, the uh, uh, commissure uh, of the valve. Provided that's the case, then I'll simply extend the aortotomy transversely from left to right and then right to left, and then hockey stick it down into the mid portion of the non-coronary cusp. So to do that, you just want to take your time, gently bend the incision down to aim towards the midpoint of the non-coronary cusp. Now, when you do that, uh, be careful that you don't extend this incision too close to the annulus of the non-coronary cusp. You want to leave yourself, you know, somewhere between five and ten millimeters. Reason being is that once you've implanted the new prosthesis you'll find that you may have uh, a challenge closing the aortotomy down there if, it's, if the incision goes all the way down to the anus. So after you've debrided the angulus uh, and you size, you find that there's going to be a patient prosthesis mismatch mm -hmm. with an effective orifice area less than 0.8. When and how would you proceed with an angular enlargement procedure? Mm -hmm. Well, two things. One, before you start the operation, you want to look at the preoperative echo. And um, based on the echo, through the, uh, you, you can measure the diameter of the patient's annulus and get a pretty good idea of what size valve you'll be able to implant. So before embarking on the procedure, you want to have some confidence that you're going to be able to place the desired size valve. Now, if, if you think you are, but you think it's going to be close, then what I'll do is I'll go ahead and take the leaflets out uh, and then take a sizer. Let's assume I'm, I'd like to get a 21 valve in. Take a 23 sizer and see if that'll implant. Uh, if I cannot introduce a 23 sizer, then I'll try the 21 sizer and see just how tight it's going to be. And if at that juncture, I don't feel I'm going to be able to get the 21 valve in. I'll go ahead and perform a NICS procedure. Um, if, and so the, I choose a NICS because uh, A, it's easier to do than a Manugan. And B, if you've created a hockey stick aortotomy, like I prefer, it's simply a matter of extending that down through the annulus uh, of the non-coronary cusp. After you've implanted the valve and you're weaning from bypass, uh, the echo demonstrates a moderate paravalvular leak. How would you address this? Well, you can't leave that. So, um, first you'd like to avoid that, and the way I try to avoid it is, is by the way you sew the valve in. So, it's, the analogy is uh, tightening the lug nuts on when you change your tire. So you, you, you kind of go in uh, 180 degrees across from one another as you tighten these things. You don't just go around circumferentially. So when I seat the valve, I typically will tie the sutures at each of the three posts on the prosthetic valve, which is aligned with each of the three commissures, and then go midpoint between each of the three commissures starting with the one that's directly under the left main. Most of these paravalvular leaks are, are going to occur under the left main because 
uh, it's the hardest to see and it's therefore the most difficult to be certain that you've got the valve seated in that area. So that's why I start there because if, if you tie the knot there first, uh, predictably you'll be able to see what you're doing. And then just work your way around. Once you've got the three commissure uh, sutures tied and the three points midway between the commissures tied, you can have confidence the valve's going to be seated and then you just go ahead and tie the rest of the sutures. And whether you use a core knot or whether you tie them manually, it probably doesn't matter. But assuming you've got a paravalvular leak, you're gonna, you can't leave it, particularly if it's that big. So what you want to do is do the best you can to interrogate the location of it with the transesophageal echo. And let's assume it's under the left main. In that case, you're probably going to have to take the valve out and sew it in again. If it's under the right coronary, you're probably going to have to take the valve out and sew it in again. If it's in the non-coronary cusp, you may be able to bring sutures in from outside the aorta in and uh, with the needle catch the sewing ring of the prosthesis and close it off that way. But beware that it's harder than you may think to actually find the paravalvular leak in some cases. Sometimes it's obvious, but in other cases it can be difficult to find. And if, you, if you're not certain you can find it, the, probably the best thing to do is to cut the valve out and sew it in again. Now that intermediate and even low-risk patients are being considered for TAVR, do you think that surgical AVR will be a thing of the past? I think isolated AVR will be uh, um, done much less frequently than it is today. I think the treatment of choice is probably going to be TAVR uh, within a very short period of time. And again, uh, remember that the, the disease of aortic stenosis is primarily a disease of aging. So, you know, three-quarters of the people that are currently being treated for aortic stenosis are already above the age of 70. So those people uh, usually, not always, but usually come in with a variety of comorbidities, and TAVR is a, a logical choice for them. Um, the question is going to be, and the answer we don't know yet, is the durability of the transcatheter valves. Right now we think they're, you know, approximately the same as a bioprosthetic surgical valve, uh, but we don't know that. And, um, and so there, there does continue to be some uh, concern about that in, uh, using the TAVR for much younger patients. But I, I do think that um, most people are going to naturally prefer the, uh, some sort of treatment that doesn't require open-heart surgery. So if they can effectively get their aortic stenosis treated with TAVR, they, they're probably going to elect to do that. And secondly, even if the TAVR valve uh, wears out, which it will at some point in a young person, if, if, if the valve that's been initially implanted is large enough to accept another valve in valve, then I think that's the morbidity of that is far less than a redo aortic valve. Now, the other side of the coin is that um, 
the advent of TAVR now, I think, clearly drives the market towards more tissue valves that are to be surgically implanted. So even young people that might have otherwise chosen a mechanical valve now may say, well, why don't I just get a tissue valve, and when this fails, I'll just get a valve and valve. Um, and I, I think that's a viable option. But I, if you look even today uh, in our own program, 70%, well, almost 70% of the isolated aortic valves are already done by TAVR. So the valves that are done surgically are going to continue to become those that, for one reason or another, are not amenable to TAVR. It's a valve plus something else, you know, cabbage or aortic resection, um, endocarditis, you know, those sorts of things. Thank you for your time, Dr. Fullerton. Thank you, Brandon.